from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 61. Today, we will be speaking with Jackie Chandler. After a job moved Jackie to Incline Village, Nevada, on the north shore of Lake Tahoe in the western USA, she began to notice a major conflict between the impact of tourism and the billion-dollar financial designs related to the lake's preservation plans. And so began her foray into geotourism, becoming Lake Tahoe's liaison to National Geographic's geotourism mapping project. This volunteer position helped to guide the destination's stewardship and changed Jackie's life journey, ultimately leading her to develop a blueprint for how to convert visitors to destination stewards. Jackie, welcome to the Business of Food Travel podcast, and thank you for being on the show today. Jackie, it is such a treasure to be speaking with you again. I feel like the time that we spent at the conference in Reno where I met you was just too short. We we really were uh, like-minded souls, and I, I really just wanted to chat with you more, and I'm so delighted that you agreed to be on the podcast today. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be here, and I felt the same way. It was very exhilarating to meet someone with a shared value system on how people travel and get a sense of place through a taste of place. I think it's brilliant what you're doing. Thanks so much for the kind words. Before we get into the fun stuff about Jackie, because you you are a fun person, you're a personality, and I, I totally respect and admire and, and really cherish the work that you've done there in the Lake Tahoe area. How did you end up in Lake Tahoe. You were in the East Bay of San Francisco in the Oakland Livermore area. How did you end up in Lake Tahoe in the first place? I was working contract PR and marketing for a firm in Oakland. They didn't quite have enough hours. And my background being from Santa Barbara, I'm actually a fashion designer. So I was also doing work on designing things out of my home studio. And with young daughters at the time, I wanted to spend more time at the home studio. So the Oakland job actually found me this listing online that needed a designer, pattern maker. They con- I connected with them and they were very excited. They actually stole me away from that job. And one day they asked if I could come work with a designer directly. And I thought they lived in San Francisco, but they gave me an address up in this place called Incline Village that I hadn't heard of. And my time in Tahoe hadn't really been that great. So I wasn't a really a fan of Tahoe, but I went up to uh, work with the designer directly since they were paying me salary. I came to this place called Incline and um, it blew me away. It was very uh, magical. I was able to get out and really touch the nature that had eluded me as a visitor. And this began my journey. I ended up relocating and um, falling in love with this lake and then things took off in a way I'd never, ever imagined. Well, like you were saying before, life comes to you. And I think that's very much the case. Yeah, I know. I was, I thought I was defining my life, trying to move forward with my design skills, but you know, there's lots of things to design and creativity finds a way when a solution is needed. And I wouldn't think that my creativity would find its way into the tourism industry, but It did. But coming from fashion industry, which is the most pressurized time, money, get it on the runway. When I saw the problems that Tahoe was having, the conflict between hosting millions of visitors to a place that had billions of dollars trying to mitigate and offset the incredible weight the tourism was having on the ecosystem and the wildlife. I was looking at this going, whoa, wait a minute. We have 
everything we need to make this dress. Let's get it on the runway. Only to realize how powerful political will is and how entrenched mindsets can be around, you know, the way that business is done versus the way the economy needs to become more the economy so that everybody can win, including the forest, the bears, and the water. I understand that Lake Tahoe has a prestigious new award. Would you like to tell our, our listeners what that is? Fodor's has put it on the top of the 10 places not to visit for 2023. This is, um, I guess I found myself somewhat humored and also painfully frustrated because it infers to me that it's the visitor's fault. You know, don't come to visit. Nature needs a break. That's the reasoning. Nature needs a break. And for all the work and everything I've seen 23 years living here, and 15 years leading the effort as a geotourism liaison, it's not the visitor's fault. I mean, the visitors are really the potential heroes of the story. It's really on the hosting. You know, if someone comes to your house and you don't ask, they take off shoes, that cleanup's on you, right? Well, the 15, what is it, $1.8 billion worth of cleanup that mitigates the 15 million 15 to 30 million, there's different numbers of how many people are coming to this tiny little watershed, that cleanup's on us. And unfortunately, that's taxpayer dollars. So all of us. Indeed. Yes, it is. It's a sad situation. Tahoe is not the only place in the world that's being affected like that. But you were talking about the watershed. And when I met you, in Reno at the conference, you were talking about the eight worlds of the Tahoe watershed. And I thought this was such a fascinating concept. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? And uh, maybe talk a little bit about the artwork that you had commissioned and how the, the eight worlds interact with each other. Okay, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit. How I got to the eight worlds is in 2007 when a friend I was working for the Tahoe Film Festival as a volunteer, and I had been talking so much about this conflict between hosting visitors or the no host bar of visitors and all the money being spent for um, the mitigation. My friend took me to this tourism conference. That's where I first saw geotourism. Jonathan Turtlette, the executive director at the time, was presenting this for, I think, the second or third time to Tahoe. I just thought it was brilliant. There were 12 steps, 12 principles and four steps. It really moved my needle, and I thought, that's it. The visitors are the key if you just give them a menu of activities that will guide them toward actions that do no harm and actually sustain the place. That's geotourism is tourism that protects, sustains, or enhances. So I really jumped on this. That's when I became the liaison and then formed up a nonprofit, started presenting using the slide deck that National Geographic gave me because I was their appointed liaison. It was a volunteer position. So looking at all the types of tourism, what geotourism identified is that there's food tourism, agro-tourism, wildlife viewing tourism, cultural tourism, heritage, all the ways that people want to encounter a place are really all the ways that a place expresses its uniqueness. Those are the unique assets. So I thought, what is at the base of this? And that's when this concept took a while to gel but it's these eight worlds. And the first world is the world of sky. 
everything from sunset, sunrise, night sky, all the things in the sky, and how amazing and different the air quality is and the sunset is in a desert versus in an ocean versus in a meadow, all the things that are happening in the sky. That's a whole world, and it's unique to every destination. Like Nevada, we have Gerlach, the darkest city in America, and it's got incredible night sky, and that's a, a draw for people. And then there's the world of water, all the different, you know, from ocean to stream to marshland. There's so many different types of worlds happening in the water, the whole ecosystem of water, some that you see and some that you don't see that's going underground, which is especially in Tahoe. I mean, it's a watershed because the 72 miles around the lake that surround Lake Tahoe are just, the mountains go straight up and they're just pulling, all the water is going right in. So you see the 63 creeks, but the water's all the way between it, the whole 72 miles is pulling water in, which is why it's so difficult having a road next to that water. But anyway, so there's a whole world of water, unique to every destination. Then there's the land, desert, mountains, forest, all the types of terrain that are unique to the area. And it's why people travel. They want to connect to the hiking or the whatever they're doing on that land. It's significant to their traveling, what they experience. And then there's the wild plants, the trees, all the foliage that is unique. Some places have deep rainforests and other places are cactus. So there's a whole world of plant and foliage. It's a world unto itself. And so now you can see these start to layer. And the next one is the wildlife. Every place has unique wildlife, even cities. Look at the bars. There's a lot of wildlife in there. So there's wildlife happening. And whether it's on the ground, in the air, it's together with the sky, the water, the land, the wildlife, it becomes the community. Those things are all working in harmony, all together. And one thing I pointed out that I just recently found out is why sourdough bread is so unique because the air and the water of San Francisco versus the air and the water of Paris is very different and it influences that food. So then you have community and then humans come in and become part of that community. So that's the fifth world. Then that community, well, that's actually the sixth world. Then the seventh world is the community creates a culture and that culture becomes the eighth world heritage. And so the culture are things when you go to experience the food culture and the heritage, the food becomes part of the heritage, the old ancient Italian recipe or something that has been in Spain for, you know, since the 16th century. And these become draws and attraction. So the point of the eight worlds is this is why people travel. They travel to experience these eight worlds, maybe one or two. But they're all included because remember that it's like a layered cake. The heritage doesn't happen without culture to build heritage that needed community, that needed the land. I call it the language, where language comes from the land. You know how every indigenous tribe have different words because of their relationship with that land. And that's the language, which is the product of all these working together. So if people are coming to destinations, no matter what tourism they're looking for, it's going to involve one or many of these eight worlds. That's what we want to protect. That's what we want to sustain. That's where the money is, is sustaining this and developing 
activities and adventures that connect people to these eight worlds in a way that gets them so, it's so fun, immersive, meaningful, and educational that when they leave, they migrate these incredible stories. And the thing that was my big uh, insight working with you, Eric, and your conference was how food is the ultimate expression of the eight worlds. Truly the ultimate expression. I had never seen that till I presented with you. And that was my, one of my big takeaways. So that's the eight worlds. The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Thinking about a career change because of the pandemic or looking to improve your current skills, consider our bespoke training and certification programs in culinary tourist guiding, culinary tour operations, restaurant and food service, and culinary destination marketing. Visit academy.worldfoodtravel.org to learn more and get started. That's fantastic. And wasn't this inspired by the indigenous tribes there around the lake? Well, even before 2007, I started meeting many of the local indigenous people called the Washishu, the Washoe people that were here for over 10,000 years and really left so little trace. It's hard to know they were here. I mean, some people think Washoe County, they were named after Washoe County, which is pretty sad. So I had gone to lots of meetings, mostly conflict meetings. And as I started meeting the Washoe people, I started saying, you've got to come to these meetings. This is your land because this is their ancestral land for 10,000 years. And just because they left no trace, it's like, couldn't we learn something from that as a modern culture struggling to try to preserve this water clarity of, of the lake? So as I started meeting them and going to their tribal circles and conferences and um, tribal meetings, and I started recognizing how significant it was. Plus, Jonathan, the director, when he handed the mantle to me as a, the appointed geotourism liaison, he said, I'll tell you one thing. If you don't involve tribal knowledge, you have nothing. You'll have nothing because they hold the key to sustaining it because clearly it was pretty good shape when the colonists took over. So aside from that, I was learning a lot because my own personal journey was also to learn the language of the place. Like one thing um, early on after I was only living here for a short time, I like to run uphill barefoot and there's these great sandy trails near my house. So I was running up and I like to go at dawn one 5 a.m. morning and I'm running up this hill and I see another set of prints and I'm thinking, wow, that's great. There's another barefoot runner. So I'm following the prints. I go up further and I step out on a boulder to look at the view. I'm up high about, you know, a couple thousand feet up and suddenly 30 feet in front of me, something moves. And yeah, I was tracking a bear. So I back up and crazy enough, I actually had some bear spray that someone had given me. And I thought, why would I take that? And I'm spraying in the air like aerosol. I mean, it's just hilarious. I turn around, I run down, I'm shaking. I'm so scared. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is so embarrassing. I live here. How do I not know this, that there would be bears on this trail and that that was a bear footprint? And also what about all the millions of visitors? This was one of the early insights, even before 2007 that I started thinking, wow, I've got to really level up my sense of awareness, sense of place. 
And so as I'm struggling to learn the language of the land, I also was on my own personal quest to try to understand this relationship, realizing that the people that were here, like the Washishu, and pretty much the more I started exploring this, all indigenous people, they had before Safeway and credit cards, right? Before grocery stores, their survival depended on having a relationship with these eight worlds. I mean, they were in the process of building their culture that became the heritage, but all the other pieces as they were in community and commune with, you know, the land, the water, the sky, the wildlife, plants, their survival depended on knowing what's happening in every season. And that's a really deep relationship. And I really believe that that's why we're in so much trouble right now as a culture, because we have lost that, that sacred relationship. And that part of my, my personal mission is to inspire people to just, you know, with simple ways like earthwalks and stuff to remember, recover and restore, restore that, that relationship. So we can restore our culture and create a story that works in harmony with natural law instead of in violation of it. So back to your question with the indigenous people, that's just some background. Then through all these meetings and friendships that I made, we um, also demonstrated how you could host the eight worlds using trinomics and um, geotourism, these, these tools that we had accumulated in what we called a geotourism expo. So for two days, we had a, a big weekend event that small groups of people could sign up for guided adventures that were on this geotourism menu and get there with a bus or a bike or a boat, no cars, and no cars were used in hosting them. Well, maybe shuttles, shuttles. Before we did one of these events, which always opened, we did them um, once every uh, four, for four or five years. So we always opened with a Washoe prayer or a water blessing. And before one of these events, I was at the edge of the water with a Washoe elder. He hadn't seen the lake since he was like five or six, very young. They, as, as you know, they were removed to the reservations. Anyway, he was up there and he was looking so long and deep into the water. It was like he was looking through time. And then I, I was just trying to see, what is he looking at? And finally, he turns to me and says, the water's lost its sparkle. And I mean, for me, I'm seeing some sparkles. I'm not, not sure what he's talking about. He said, maybe no one's singing to it anymore. And then this goes back to that whole piece I just shared about that relationship. And you think about, you know, we go to the store now and we buy things and then we pay with money. But before money, before stores, as they would go out and benefit, you know, take from the, the berries and, and the food they needed and the fish and all this stuff, what did they give back in return? They gave a lot. Their ceremonies, their blessings, their song, their dance, all the different ways that they energetically shared gratitude for all this abundance that these eight worlds, especially the first five, were bringing them to sustain them, their life support. And they were consciously grateful because their relationship was so deep. So yes, this is what I learned. And you know, the reason we want to come up to the lake and they felt, he felt like the white people were nervous about this is because we, we have this responsibility, this obligation to sing our songs and our dances, 
to the water and the wildlife. And it made me think about if somebody stole your child when it was just born and they just stole it and they're running and you're running after them saying, whoa, okay, I get that you're, that you're not going to give it back to me, but when it's 12 years old, if you don't do this one thing, it'll die. And, and they, they think you're trying to take it back. And you're just trying to tell them, look, at if I have no way to be caring for this child, then you need to be the steward and here's what you need to do. And that's what the Washoe people, they think, you know, the ones I've talked to and met, and I don't, I'm not trying to speak for the tribe or be appropriate Asians or anything. I'm just saying my personal experience in talking with them is that what has been painful is they had this responsibility of stewardship, this sharing gratitude, this giving back. And that they don't have, I mean, now they have a few things have opened up around the lake where they have access to go and share their, their songs and give their water blessings. And this is significant and important because it's part of their culture and it's part of their heritage. And it's that relationship they have with these eight worlds, especially the first five, that they were in that community. I've just learned so much in that. I mean, I could go on a long time, but, you know, the gravity of it was heavy on my heart. And so I went on a quest to try to find what can I give back? What songs can I give back? Because I learned a few of theirs, but I thought, where did they get these songs? And I realized they got these songs by walking the land to understand. And in that understanding, you deepen your listening and your awareness and it's true. The verses started coming. The songs in the water started coming into my heart. And this definitely sealed the deal that my journey was to stand for the water and the sense of place that I felt I could never get as a visitor. And so I've become this huge advocate for the visitor experience. And I'm upset with the do not visit list. I believe that it's a wake up for the host and Lake Tahoe is a national treasure surrounded by private public holdings that are kind of in conflict, which is why trinomics is the only way out. You know, everything that you just talked about really is sustainability 101. And it's kind of ironic that sustainability was there with the, the first peoples and then the colonists came and took over and said, we'll take that, thank you. And we did things our ways for a couple hundred years. And now we're being forced to learn to go back to the original ways. And if we had just listened and maybe partnered with the locals as opposed to conquering them, I think we'd be in a much different position today. Oh, Eric, thank you for that. Thank you. Yes, you can even back that all the way up to coming to America. Had we just partnered? Why are we just coming to this moment now when our relationship to these eight worlds is the most sacred thing we have? I mean, John Muir never said protecting nature meant locking people out. Preserving nature happens when you see yourself in nature, as nature, so that you can remember, recover, and restore that connection you have because it's hard to say you're not connected with nature if you're breathing. You're already in relationship with the trees exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. The whole greening of the planet is here to support our life support. And yet we're just so hung up on extraction and short-term gain that 
we forgot how to steward a millennial forest. You know, millennial forest where we won't be there for the fruits, but we know it's not even that we owe it. It's just our responsibility, like the Washoe people, it's they can't even separate it from their DNA. It's just in their direct nature access, right? The DNA that we all have. I just think we forgot. You're, you're absolutely right. Your statement is is profound and, and sad. Well, it also relates to what you were saying before about your number one pet peeve in business or life <laughs> and how greed continues to win. That it just... You think about where the world is headed, and I think we've been clobbered. We've all been clobbered on the head around the world with the sustainability club. Uh, you know, we need to get this right. But I take trips to countries, and recycling is they look at you like you're from Mars or something. I'm not going to shame any countries here, but I recently took a trip, and nothing was recycled. Not not a single thing. Everything came wrapped in plastic. Straws were, were plastic straws were put on the tables, and I handed the straw back to the server, and she looked at me like I was I was rude, like I had no manners, as opposed to I was doing a, a good thing. And you're right. How does greed continue to win, Jackie? I've struggled so much with that, especially where I live here. And all I can think of is, hmm, well, if we can't get greed out of the culture, then let's get greedy for something different. Let's get greedy for clean air, for clean water. Let's get greedy for community collaboration. Let's get greedy for sharing gratitude and preserving the wildlife and, and protecting things. Let's, you know, let's try to leverage people's greed for their property values to like, well, your property value would be a lot higher longer if the lake stayed clear. So here's how the lake stays clear. Do you want to get behind this? Because it's shocking to see people with so many resources and then think about things like Fukushima or <laughs> bear hunting. I mean, really, we can't shut that down when bears are an indicator species of a healthy forest. So we're we keep cutting off our air supply. It's just shocking. We're just greedy for the wrong things, I guess. I'm not sure there, and it is it is difficult. Wachwell Havel, the um, Czech or Polish leader, said, until there is a revolution on the level of consciousness, a more humane society cannot emerge. So for me, I always think about knowledge is structured in consciousness, which is based on levels of awareness. So just like what happened to me with the bear and then the elder, I had to level up my awareness and a whole new world opened. And I think the pandemic in this time is asking us to level up that awareness. Please don't go back to anything. There was no normal we have left behind that we should scramble to get back into. If anything, the pandemic is saying, whoa, stop, back up, look, put the car in neutral, idle, and then realize, okay, turn off the car and start walking and remember and recover your native relationship, which ironically, we walk at three miles an hour and that's how our brain functions best. Some of the best ideas come when people walk to unleash and get that circulatory system going through the whole body and then so much brilliance has come from that. We always have an opportunity to take a different step and I guess the work I'm doing is obviously, well, obviously I know what it's doing. It's trying to inspire that step any way I can, but not everybody wants to play at, or they want to move at their level. You know, the tourism industry is tough. And so I'm hoping this do not visit becomes a 
a pause instead of berating the visitors. You know, it's not keeping them out. It's how you let them in and who's hosting them. And is the hosting connecting them to the eight worlds? Because if people are connecting, then they're going to care. And if they care, I guarantee they will share from that level of caring and that gratitude will start moving the sparkle back into the water. And then we can smile and know that we have remembered our stewardship, our responsibility to give back. What can we give? That gratitude, that that love that we feel when we're out in nature. We can give it back and thank the trees and the leaves. Well, like you said, maybe this is going to be a, a new pause for Lake Tahoe to take some time out, kind of like the pandemic was and still is. I think the pandemic and the legacy of everything that, that the pandemic left us with is is forcing us to pause, I think, as, as a planet. This is intense, Jackie. Let's talk about some fun stuff. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Actually, I was reading The Heartbeat of Trees. And there's actually a lot of science that's showing that trees have a type of quote unquote heartbeat. But the most profound book, I, I almost want to reread it, is Return to the Brain of Eden. So I guess I'm not reading the super silly books, but, um, but it's pretty cool. This is, takes me outside of what would be considered normal, right? Heartbeat of trees. What's the Brain of Eden book about? The Return to the Brain of Eden by Tony Wright. This is a book I so highly recommend. It's restoring the connection between neurochemistry and consciousness. So this guy went back way before the Savannah humans that we think that's where we kind of came from. You know, this is way before that we were in the rainforest. Just like all this stuff is coming out about fungi intelligence, you know, and how it's managing this entire network, this entire worldwide wood web in the planet that sustains us, right? Well, we were connected to that in a, in a different kind of way. And there's more coming out in this archaeologically too, that there were, you know, two types of humans, right? That were on the earth, the Neanderthal and the humanoids, all this stuff. That, that's the wrong word. But anyway, now they're seeing that there was some crossovers. And the thing that was unique about the Neanderthal, they almost had like how animals have these instincts, right? Of knowing what not to eat. They have more, more memories, more instincts of the natural world. This Tony Wright goes way back before this, where we were so much more immersed in the ecosystem that our right and left brains and our whole hormonal system Actually, the book is really about sex. Time to think of it. The hormonal system, which runs the brain, ran them equally. And when the left and the right brain run at equal power, where one isn't dominating, we're a little more left brain dominant now in our modern culture. When they were running like this, it was a very different human being. And it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. I don't know. I won't go into deep, but it's an incredible book. Neurochemistry, the hormones, relationship to the brain and how, you know, the right brain sees the holistic, a, a different, a different kind of picture. Anyway, the guy goes, he's very nerdy in this area, but it's, it's fascinating because no one's really broken that far back, broken through to see another way that humans can be. And the, the reason it says return is because the ability to live that much interwired with nature is still within the realm of the unified field. And so we could reactivate that it's potent to do it. It would change so many things and it's, it would be really helpful at this moment right now 
anyway, that's what I'm reading. What about you? What are you reading? Oh gosh, I'm I'm reading so so many different things. I, I have about six different books open in my Kindle right now. One book that I am fascinated with is called The Road to Mecca. Have you heard of it? No, wait. Yeah, I think I have heard of that. Road to Mecca. I'm gonna write that down. It's it's by Muhammad Assad, and that is his Islamic name. But he was a, I believe, he was a British guy and he started writing this book back in the early 1950s and he converted to Islam but he explains Islam and his journey through the eyes of a westerner from eyes of a european specifically there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding in the world a lot of cross cultural misunderstandings and and lack of communication so to speak and our organization does quite a bit of work with one country in particular in the middle east and i was invited over to some friends house in london recently and the the man is tunisian and the woman is algerian or vice versa so i hope they forgive me if they're listening to this but anyway they're north african they were explaining some of the the features of islam and arab countries to me and they said you know you should you should really read this book because from it's, it was written by a westerner and helps westerners to understand our perspective and how we see things and how we got to to where we are today and how the world kind of got to this this place of mutual misunderstanding and so I've been delving into that and it's, it's I have to say it's it's pretty fascinating you know I will check that out and I agree that is incredibly important right now Throughline did a uh, it's a radio podcast did a really interesting thing on Islam they went way way back through the history to show, show how we got here and so when you're saying that it reminded me it might have been where I heard of the book but I'll check it out that would be very helpful it really is perspective it really is. If we can be willing to look at different perspectives that we would find how much more we have in common and, and how advantageous our diversity is, really. I, I remember one time I used to be an Airbnb super host, which is another area where I tested my concepts of, you know, if you give people a menu of certain activities and you guide them to them, they will, you can convert visitors to stewards. And it did work over 10 years, 5,000 people. But this one time I had an interesting group. Somebody was from Holland. Someone else was from the Middle East and someone else was somewhere else in Europe. And we were all sitting around the table talking, talking about the crisis with climate change. And it was interesting. The young guy from Amsterdam, Holland said, we were talking about the water rising. And this was just, just a casual after dinner conversation. But he was like, he said, we know how to man, you know, we've got water down. And he said, we know how, you know, we, we created how New York City works with water and about the dikes and all, all the different ways that they are experts at managing water and what they've been able to do in their own country to shore up problem areas, right? And then the guy from the Middle East, I'm not sure which country, he said, you know, there's this part of the desert that used to be filled with water. And so they started with a pen drawing and figuring, well, what if the water rises, we open this up and the water comes in and fills back this area where no one's living, that is this desert. And they were like solving in a really tiny way, proposing an idea, just an idea. It doesn't mean it was the right idea, but it was interesting to see here's the Middle East and here's Holland. And this other guy was maybe from France or somewhere in Europe. And they were taking the beautiful contribution that their country has really honed as a skill set and being willing to put it on the table and work with, well, what do you got? You're the water expert and you, you've got this land in this desert. And they were like solving for this. If when the water rises, they had a little 
first step solution that might lead to something. And I was feeling like I was sitting at the table of the UN or something. You know, it was just a, a microcosm, but it showed that the diversity was the key for our own survival. If all we're greedy for is our own survival, our diversity and ability to understand these different perspectives, Islam and all, all the different native indigenous people coming out of the rainforest screaming, saying, what are you doing? You know, like all these different voices, the diversity is the jewel. It's the jewel. And we've just like, I love what you said, the mutual misunderstanding is made this quagmire that has become a sinkhole uh, so unnecessarily. Well, I always tie things back to food and, and culinary culture and keep thinking about, <laughs> of course, you know, it always goes back to food, yeah, right? Yeah, it does, of course. How, if we don't preserve the culinary cultures that we have, then the entire world will end up drinking Starbucks and eating McDonald's and ordering Pizza Hut. <laughs> so right. And how boring would that be? Well, no, and this is, I, I saw this happening before my eyes. I was working for a company in San Francisco and they said, oh, you're going to go work on a project in Singapore for an indefinite period of time. So good luck. Goodbye. And I said, okay, so I got to Singapore and right across the street from my hotel where they had put me up for several months was a Starbucks. And I thought, oh God, here we go. And then in the Starbucks, and then you go into the shopping mall at, that was at, by the Starbucks and there was a KFC. And I thought, how sad is this in a country that's known for its street food, the hawker stands, it's a, a crossroads of four major cultures, the, the Chinese, the Malay, the Indian, and the British. And the food in spectacular, the, the food you get everywhere else, but fast food is just outstanding and and here's this fast food stuff happening and i just i don't get it you know and i that's what really tipped me off that if we don't really fiercely protect our own culinary cultures then i don't even know if there's going to be a reason to to travel ever again <laughs> at least not for me that's ironic because that was the one thing that jonathan shared at the geotourism presentation is that national geographic who sent Photo, has photographed the world, the diverse, incredible world, right? They started noticing that places around the world that had Starbucks and McDonald's. And so once it's all same, exactly what you said, why even leave your house? That was the impetus to construct back in the 90s, this geotourism idea of how can visitors help you sustain or enhance the unique assets of the place. And food is, I mean, when you're talking, I'm almost thinking we need a new t-shirt, save the food, because you're absolutely right. They said people, as soon as it has McDonald's, he said, that's actually a clue that you know a destination is starting to fall when you go. And it's like, hey, mom, they have McDonald's just like home. When it starts to feel like home, they're on the slide down. That's what appeals to the local people. They think that they've arrived, that they've hit big time when they finally get that McDonald's or Starbucks. You're, you're right. And that is the misnomer. That's why geotourism was pushing out there to help different areas save their uniqueness. I mean, that happened in Vermont. I, I met with Gloria Bruce. I mean, right when I got appointed, it, it took a while to learn. I went to places. I talked with the Appalachia, John Wright at the Appalachia, and the problems they were having trying to spread people out. And then Gloria Bruce over at the Northeast Kingdom, they were so distraught with their destination. They were looking to bring in water slides or they were looking outside to try to think, what do they have that attracts people? And then with geotourism, they realized, wait a minute, the question we ask is, what do we love and not want to lose? 
And what's one thing we're willing to do? And so they started working as a community. People that like fine wines also want a moose watch, you know, watch, they had these moose, you know, and so they started combining the different unique assets into these bigger tours and people loved it. And pretty soon Jay Peak, their, their top ski resort had pictures of the farmers that were ready to just die off these little mini artisanal farms, you know, were ready to leave the area. They couldn't make it. And pretty soon they're starting to have cheese workshops and then people would go see the skiing and then they would want to learn about the food. And then Claire's formed this restaurant that was all about the farmers in the area within 20 miles or something. And the menu depended on what was in season. I mean, just all these things happened and more people came out because it was a bigger draw out of New York and Boston. They wanted to get that uniqueness because you're right. If you're in Boston and New York, you some of the best food in the world. Why would you, right? But they can't get a cheese workshop on a farm and they couldn't get to be able to see moose and then have the wine that was grown from the vineyards there. So that was a huge save for the Northeast Kingdom or it would have just gone into really a water slide. We could just do that at home, you know? So you're, you're right. This is the abyss. This is the, the fine wire. Are you going to fall off and, you know, look outside or you can look inside. What do you love and not want to lose? And what's one thing you're willing to do to host people in a way that makes them the hero of your destination? So you you would never have a do not visit sign up. Shame on Tahoe. And it's not always the Western corporations that are looking to come in. In some situations, they're being sought out by local residents who want to franchise, for example. Uh, we, we do a lot of consulting work with destinations, as you can imagine. And I was in one destination earlier this year, and we were asking them for a place to, to go to lunch. There was some downtime between our next meeting. This was a destination that really you wouldn't know anything about the food. That's the challenge. And so we were trying to work with them on that. And so we, we had a couple hours, we needed a place for lunch, and we were asking them where we should go. And they were going to send us to an Italian restaurant. And we said, no, you know, we don't really want Italian, you know, how about something local? And then they agreed to send us to a French restaurant. My, me and my colleagues were looking <laughs> at each other as if, why? Wow. You know, we're, we're in this country with, with, you have fantastic food that no one in the world knows about, and you're sending us to European restaurants. And I think some of these countries have a feeling that if it's European or North American, it's the best. And you, you should celebrate that. We, we want to show you the best, so we're going to take you to a French restaurant. Well, well no, we, we want to see your food. We want to taste your food. I experienced that particular reaction in a lot of places, and it kind of um, really makes my heart sink when I see that kind of behavior. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion. That's you know, the more, you know, in, in meeting you and learning about your work, I really think taste the eight worlds in the food. If you're not tasting the eight worlds of a place in the food, you are missing the reason you're traveling there. And I used to say to people for Tahoe, you wouldn't go to France for California wines. We don't want to insult you with bottled water. Please drink from the tap. We have some of the best water in the world. People don't know. They just think, oh, bottled water and no, then, then we have all the plastic trash everywhere. So, One last question before we have to wrap up here. I always like to ask my guests, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? If you were in a cafe and you looked over and there was Jackie Chandler, who was 22 years old, what would you tell yourself? 
get a champion. <laughs> and what does that mean? Well, I mean, I'm a champion to myself and there are a lot of champions I see, but it's very hard to move the needle. Like one of the things I would love to have right now that would be a game changer for Tahoe is, and this is not even my idea. This was UC Davis would love to have move their science center onto the water with a 5,000 foot floating observatory that would have see-through floors and all these different ways to understand this ecosystem. It would be phenomenal because people just want to get out on the lake. And that would, of course, lead to the water transit. But, you know, we start there and there's already an engineer that's a, a ferry builder, Lou Madden, who's this incredible person that already lives here in Carnelian Bay that could do it. He's already got people that could do it. He's working for DARPA right now, but he would he would be happy to take this on. OK, so here's a bunch of champions. But what I don't have is someone to write that check for $5 million to get us started. It would help on so many levels. And that's what I mean. You, Without a financial champion that doesn't have an agenda tied to something. I mean, there's a ton of finance here. Believe me, I live in a town that's nickname is Income Village. There's billionaires all around me. But many times I've, I've approached some of them too. You know, sometimes people just, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But it's if I had... A financial champion that could just say, yeah, let's do this. This is good. Let's do this and put more weight behind it that would push in the business world. But because I don't have that, what I'm doing instead is I'm putting together a TEDx talk and I'm working on some speaking engagements that can try to go right to the public and say, hey, if we can't move it on the big level, on a groundswell, if we all walk softly, respect wildlife, share gratitude, get curious. When you go to a new destination and you're sitting at the restaurant, where does the water come from? You know, get curious, get curious. Is this food grown local? I mean, it doesn't have to be like Portlandia where you want to go out to the chicken farm, but maybe you do. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's really sage advice. I, and I would agree with that. Well, Jackie, it's been an absolute delight. We've been talking for, for almost an hour and it, it just has flown by so fast. And I, I just, I can't wait to our next conversation. I There's so much I, I want to discuss with you and share with you and, and learn from you. Thank you very much. And you're welcome. And please, if you come to Tahoe, please let me host you. <laughs> I will uh, definitely connect you to the magic of this incredible sanctuary. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, thank you again, Jackie, for your time. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and the professional training programs in its academy. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org. Or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Jackie Chandler, and our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead. 